This is part four of the EM Cases COVID series of podcasts. In part one, we covered screening, diagnosis, and management with Andrew Morris. In part two, we covered surge capacity strategies with Daniel Colick. In part three, we covered PPE, conservation strategies, and protected coat blue with Lori Morrison. And in this one, we'll cover airway management in the COVID era with George Kovacs. In part five, we'll have a short discussion with an epidemiologist from the University of Toronto, a master of prediction models for epidemics, Ashley Chute. Now, don't forget the weekly COVID updates in the EM Cases newsletter and on the website. And don't forget the COVID quick hits either. The show notes for this podcast will be packed with infographics, algorithms, and key visuals. So please check that out after you've listened to the podcast. Okay, here we go. Airway management in the COVID era. It's my pleasure to welcome back on the show. You've probably heard him many times before in many of our episodes, whenever it comes to airway, probably hands down Canada's leading expert on airway management, Dr. George Kovacs, who has very kindly interrupted his very busy schedule while developing guidelines for COVID airway management uh, to come and speak to us on EM cases. Thanks so much, George, for joining us today. It's always great to be with you uh, and on EM Cases, Anton. Thanks. I'd like to start off with asking you, Dr. Kovacs, what is different from your usual RSI when it comes to airway management in the COVID era? Yeah, great question, Anton. And uh, and that's been the, the prevailing question there. And I, I, I want to turn that around because I, I think there's a lot of fear and, and I understand that fear, and I, I, I share that fear. But I think that what we need to realize also is that um, much of what we're doing is still the same, right? What we're used to in emergency medicine. We have somebody, we identify that they require intubation. Uh, we're going to proceed with an RSI. We're going to use equipment such as a video laryngoscope. We're going to work with a team that we, we work with, and we're going to use an algorithm that we're, that we're used to. And those are all really, really important similarities. And that has to be sort of an overarching message. However, there are significant differences. So I just don't want people to be too scared in other words, a lot of this is, is core emergency medicine, doing the things that, that I, just, I just talked about. The equally important issue, though, is what is different. And probably the major thing is that it does represent a paradigm shift. The emphasis is really on, on provider safety. And by focusing on provider safety, it does mean that we are leaving what we would traditionally value as optimizing the patient prior to intubation. And that's a whole other subject for, for a different podcast in terms of the nuances and, and pre-oxygenation, et cetera. But it is a paradigm shift, and that paradigm shift is around provider safety. What else is different? Well, we're doing all the things that I described above with PPE on. And we're often doing it in different rooms. So negative pressure rooms that weren't necessarily your, your resuscitation rooms. So we're doing environments that might be different than what we're used to. Probably the big one that people are focusing on, and it's incredibly important really around the details, the granular aspects that we have to pay meticulous attention to. And that's how we prepare, 
how we pre-oxygenate, how our sequencing during intubation and rescuing the patient is going to be different in certain ways. And that these details really aren't guided by high quality evidence. In fact, I, I preface our document and probably most materials that are out there that at best it's level C. Level C evidence, meaning that uh, low quality evidence and uh, consensus or expert opinion. The other thing that's different is that while these patients can rapidly deteriorate, and that's because they might be self-isolating at home and then presenting later, that we do need to slow down. And again, that's a, that's a paradigm shift. You have somebody that's hypoxemic, that needs airway management, and our usual status and sense is to hurry up, right? In emergency medicine, we've always got that, that pressure of increasing increased tempo. And applying that increased tempo to these patients is gonna cause, cause risk to the providers taking care of these patients. So every document that I've seen is slow down. Make sure you take the time to prepare and you check that you have everything in order before you enter that room. A lot of focus has been around PPE, and I can't say that I, I'm an expert in PPE, but three points in my mind, simple points, is that we've gone from historically, based on previous experiences, that absolutely for uh, um, viruses such as COVID-19, we absolutely need to don PPE. So that was sort of stage one. And then what we learned from previous experiences is not a, a, it's not a just about PPE, is that we need to have the process down. Right, The process is, is critical and breaches in that process cause risk. The third level that we're finding ourselves in a lot of discussion about is what's the optimal PPE for doing the procedure in question. So usually we think of PPE purely from an infectious control point of view, but how does that PPE affect your ability to perform? Right. So. And um, those are important questions for which there isn't any evidence. So, so again, uh, trying to avoid scenarios in PPE that cause fogging, cause significant glare, that affect your peripheral vision, that are in general reasonably comfortable to wear. All these minor issues might influence the way we perform when doing an RSI for these patients. And I guess the last point that's different is that we need to raise our game from a training perspective like we've never seen before. Right? I've, I've, I've frequently made this comment, while high-performance athletes and special forces and concert musicians spend the majority of their time practicing, we in medicine spend proportionally very little time practicing and for the most part, providing. And this has to change, right? We need to decrease variability in the room. Right? And the only way to do that is to train. And that, that training is, is that you need to refine your procedures. So practicing, you know, doing video laryngoscopy, um, optimize video laryngoscopy. And that's a whole other podcast that perhaps at, at one point using PPE. You know, you have to be able to progress through that algorithm with that equipment on. And you need to train yourself to do that. And then you need to train as a team and that team detail in terms of the sequencing, you know, when you disconnect, 
when you change your flows, all of those little things have to be perfectly or as close you can to perfectly orchestrated. And so we need to spend time on that. We need to use checklists. And we talk about that a lot, but we haven't been doing it. And this is the time to do it. There's a lot to unpack there, Dr. Kovacs. So you've talked about it being a paradigm shift. There's an emphasis on provider safety. And you talked about preparation, pre-oxygenation, sequencing. We talked about how we need to slow down, even though patients may present to us who rapidly deteriorate. You talked about PPE, the three stages, and the need to train. So let's break down each of those But before we do, a simple way to identify high-risk patients who may require early intubation. So a general rule of thumb for the indication for intubation for these COVID patients is persistent hypoxemia. That's an oxygen saturation less than 90% despite 5 liters of nasal prongs and 15 liters of non-rebreather. Now, there are anecdotal reports out of New York that we might be able to get away with even lower sats without intubation. But for now, they're only anecdotal, no evidence. And I want to start with the preparation. So can you just go through for us how best to prepare before we go into the room for that patient who requires airway management? So again, I guess this goes back to training. As of tomorrow, what are you going to do? It begins with everybody having a common view as to what you're going to do. So you do have to commit. And this is, again, a paradigm shift is we're asking people to commit really before we've got great evidence to support it. In other words, the risk of not doing that is too great. We can't wait until we've got it down perfectly. So everybody needs to be on the same page um, regarding the details. And that's where I would start. So we all need to read up and we all need to train in these things. Let's get into a few more of the details in terms of preparing as you go into the room. So we've talked on the podcast before about preparing yourself, preparing your team and preparing your gear. Uh, We're not going to go into every single detail about that, but in terms of a general approach for preparing yourself, your team and your gear for COVID, what's different there? Big question. The prepare yourself, again, I I think this is more of the same. Again, there's a cognitive aspect of that. And again, I think it's important to message yourself about the what's the same in your head as opposed to what's different, right? So it's part of positive self-talk, right? If I do what I'm supposed to do in terms of optimize video laryngoscopy, performing an RSI, things are going to be okay. I've got the equipment and the appropriate stuff to do with that, right? So that's an important sort of prepare yourself. Um, it, preparing the team, you know, is is mandatory briefing um, with your team. And so what's a minimum team? You know, if you can afford it, it probably is three people. Um, there's the primary airway provider. There's the airway assistant, again, who might be an RT. It might be a, a medic. And then there's a third clinical support person, which is often a nurse. Everybody's going to have to figure out what works best in in their shop. 
Ideally, you have a, a backup team available with a second airway provider and a second support person that often will act as a sort of a runner to go in between. And these, the secondary team aren't people who are going to go in the room, but they have to be donned um, with PPE and ready to go in the room. Um, because the last thing you want is pump somebody to see crisis going on and feel that they have to, they have to breach protocol and, and jump in, right? So with your primary team, and your secondary team, it's important to have a team leader and to brief your team using the usual processes you would do as part of a pre-brief. You know, what do you know about the situation and what's your plan, right? And your plan really, again, you refer to a cognitive aid. You can use the the algorithm that, that we propose for, for an RSI so that everybody understands in terms of the can oxygenate. You can oxygenate your patient and that's sort of a a relative term to the patient who is rapidly deteriorating where you have to employ rescue measures. So you all have to be on the same page and make sure that you, you refer to those cognitive aids and that you have them to take into the room. What the equipment thing is, the important messaging is you just can't roll in your airway cart. So what we're, we're, most people are telling their, uh, their providers is that you have to spend the time in making up packs all right. So outside of the room, you have all the various components of what's your primary base airway pack. Right. And that you try to minimize the content so you don't waste it. Right. So it does mean that you have to commit to certain sizes of, of pieces of equipment um, before you uh, before you go into the room. And, and then you have uh, you might have a support or difficult airway pack that again, your runner then is going to be able to enter the room should you require um, that that equipment. The third pack that that people need to commit to is again, what are they going to use is, is their pre-oxygenation devices, right? Which for the most part is going to be the basic principle is, is that nothing should be on the face without a filter, right? So mask, filter, and usually a BVM distal to that. Okay, your filter is also your rescue disconnect device, right? So, so things proximal to the uh, the filter, again, as long as you have a good mass seal, provide safety for that environment. So you're going to talk about your airway plan, but it's also other things that you might not think of. Again, what's your disconnection plan? What's your behavioral control plan, right? And what's your cardiac arrest plan? Now, again, we, we don't think of these patients necessarily going into cardiac arrest, but if you extrapolate from other literature, we know that, that critically ill patients post-intubation do have a higher rate of cardiac arrest, somewhere in the range of 3%. So again, being ready is talking about what's your plan, what's your support, what are you going to do about that? So again, different layers um, and more advanced layers in terms of preparedness of, of, of consequence, what's going to happen that you need to have discussed with your team before you go in. We'll have the contents of each of these packs that you're describing on the show notes as well, so that you can develop the packs at your own place. We have a, a stop and think poster that's uh, going to go up on the doors before you enter the anteroom. And again, it's just sort of say, slow down, right? Have you done a buddy check of your PPE equipment? Do you have what you need? And again, a message, slow down, do what you do, pay attention to detail. 
So I want to talk a little bit more about preparation. So you can break down preparation into personnel, the pre-brief, equipment and meds, and checklists, and we'll have all this in the show notes. But I just want to review them here. So first is personnel. So who do you need, where, and where do you need them? So inside the room, you want to minimize the personnel. So that's going to be the best intubator, an RN, and an RT. Outside the room, ideally you want a second MD to help out if this turns into a failed airway situation. You want a second RN who acts as a runner, and you want a safety officer or a buddy, someone who is trained to make sure that everyone dons and doffs their PPE properly. So that's the personnel. Next in preparation is the pre-brief, and thank you to Chris Hicks for this. In the pre-brief, you do your role assignment, your equipment packs check, you draw up medications, turn on the speakerphone, a baby monitor will do for this if you don't have one, and run through your plan from pre-ox to first attempt to re-oxygenation, your plan B and your plan C. Now, Checklists are important for this, and we have a nifty checklist infographic in the show notes with the acronym COVID created by Chris Hicks, Peter Brindley, and Jared Mossier. It reminds you of all the things we're going to talk about here. So C is for coordinate, collect, and colleagues. So coordinate who will do what when, collect equipment, and have colleagues outside the room as well as inside the room, obviously. O is for only outside and obstruct. So only have three people in the room, outside PPE checked by the safety officer, and obstruct the ET tube with a clamp prior to connecting the ventilator. Again, that's obstructing the ET tube with a clamp prior to connecting the ventilator. V is for VL and voice. So VL, which is the tool of choice in the first attempt, and voice for voice communication, having that speakerphone or walkie-talkie or baby monitor so that the team inside can communicate with the team outside. And V also stands for verify, meaning verify two placement with end-title CO2 and that the ETT cuff is inflated before initiating positive pressure breaths. I is for inflate, interrupt, and insert. So So inflate the EET cuff prior to bagging or placement on the ventilator. Interrupt the circuit as infrequently as possible and only at end expiration. And the last I to consider is inserting a supraglottic airway for reoxygenation after a failed attempt or as a plan B rather than using vigorous BVM. Finally, D is for donning and doffing, double gloving, and don't leave the room prematurely. All right, next we're going to get into pre-oxygenation for the protected intubation. I want to talk specifically about pre-oxygenation, and I know it's a very complex topic uh, that perhaps we can do a future podcast on, but in terms of the general principles of pre-oxygenation for patients in the COVID era, what's kind of the bottom line when it comes to pre-oxygenation? Okay, so the bottom line is that uh, this is where there's a a fair bit of controversy. So normally we would use high flow to administer high concentration oxygen, right? And that could include flush rate oxygen, the non-rebreather as part of your BVM. It could be that you're gonna use uh, BiPAP. 
And we know that there is increased risk. And the current state is that you should not be doing those. And so you shouldn't be using high flow in terms of humidified high flow rates of 40 to 60 liters, et cetera, and that you shouldn't be doing BiPAP or anything that gives pressure support to these patients. So the issue is with humidified high flow is, is that, again, it's an open face system, right? And the problem with pressure support uh, can be in the spontaneously breathing patient that it may breach that interface between the mask and the, the face. So in general, those are common recommendations that are coming up. Whether we see change to this in the future, it's yet to be seen. So the principle is, is that, again, we've already made a decision that this is a, a sick person. In other words, they're on high concentration oxygen and they are significantly hypoxemic. So how are you going to do this? And this, as I said before, is a bit of a paradigm shift and that you have to accept lower goals with lower flows to achieve a safe environment. For most people, what that is going to be, as I said, is going to be a BVM. What's different about that BVM is it's got a lot of stuff on it, right? The one important thing um, that's going to be on every mask is a viral filter. And really, we're not talking about all kinds of different masks. As part of your BVM, it begins with a mask and then a, a viral filter and then the rest of the stuff. And what the rest of the stuff can be, waveform capnography, right? A BVM that's outfitted with PEEP and ideally a pressure manometer. And that pressure manometer usually can be attached to the disposable device that has your MDI connection. The problem with that is that when you look at that combination, your mask or face to bag is, is quite tall. And that's a potential pivot point and that could break your mask seal. So what we're doing, and there's a picture in our document of that, we're adding a flexible mount. Um, so you essentially have mask, filter, waveform, CO2 connector, and then the uh, flexible amount. And that flexible amount allows the, the person who is applying that BVM more flexibility in terms of positioning and that we're not going to torque the device and break your seal at the face. So again, little pieces. And what we have is our prepackaged BVM, right? So one of our prepacks, so we have a prepack that we're working on is going to be what are your, your base equipment that you're going to go in right? And that you're going to have your, your VL that's sized appropriately. Um, your primary device, your, your Macintosh VL is what we're going to be using, but we'll have our disposable hyperangulated that's, that's there. We're going to have the components that we're going to use with that device, the bougies and all the things that are in our, in our pre-packed base equipment. We're going to have our difficult um, airway pack. And then we're going to have our, our pre-oxygenation Part. So because this represents a non-traditional use of, of, of the BVM with various components, we're going to have those already prepackaged and ready to go. The other big thing to remember is not to not take in too much equipment, even though we've got this prepacks because we're not taking in our airway cart. If you take in multiple pieces, then you're potentially wasting those and it might not seem like it's an issue now but potentially in the future it is. So you want to be lean with what you go in with. Everybody knows what's in those packs and they practice using them. And you would hook that up and you would limit your flow to what you can monitor. So you would limit your flow to, to 15 liters per minute as part of a pre-ox strategy. 
Now the question is, can you or should you put nasal prongs underneath that at low flow? And again, we would, we would list this as a consider. And what consider means is that it is a little bit of a point of controversy, but um, from a consensus point of view, at those low flows with a well-applied mask, that it should really give, give low risk. And I'm not necessarily putting those nasal prongs on for apneic oxygenation, because some would argue that it's really, you're not going to get significant apneic oxygenation at flows, low flows under six liters per minute for these shunt physiology sick patients. But what it allows you to do is to provide potentially apneic CPAP and not have to ventilate your patient during your RSI sequence or in between attempts while you're trying to maintain their oxygenation as best you can. So again, that's uh, nuanced. That's currently what we will be using. Again, things might change as we hear uh, from experience from, from, from others. One important point to add is that in the transition from the paramedics, who will probably have nasal prongs on the patient, first you need to make sure that those nasal prongs are no more than five liters. Remember to minimize flow, to minimize aerosolization. And as a bridge to getting your BVM on the patient, it is acceptable to put a non-rebreather over top the nasal prongs temporarily. The reason is that few patients will tolerate the BVM without some ketamine on board. So again, patient comes in with nasal prongs, slap on a rebreather with a filter, preferably, just until you're ready with the ketamine to put the BVM on. So just to review pre-ox here, the first principle is there should be no mask on any patient without a viral filter. Next is that you need to use the lowest flows and oxygen necessary to achieve an oxygen saturation of 90%. So how do you do this? So the patient's going to come in with nasal prongs at five liters max, no more. You can then put on a non-rebreather mask at 15 liters max, no more. And then with the BVM that has the PEEP valve and the viral filter with waveform CO2, preferably, you're going to a maximum of 15 liters of oxygen and 10 centimeters of PEEP. And one thing to add just have a dissociative dose of ketamine ready to give slowly during pre-oxygenation as per delayed sequence intubation that Scott Weingart describes for those patients that are uncooperative. And now for a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade would like to let you know that they are helping EDs, urgent care clinics, and other provider groups during the COVID-19 pandemic. They've been helping their existing customers set up additional call schedules and screening clinics, they're also working on setting up province-wide virtual walk-in clinics, which will go live on March 30th. And they're doing this for free during the outbreak. Metricade's giving these organizations access to their web-based tool, but more importantly, they're doing all the work building and managing these schedules, helping to build capacity and resilience in our system, doing what they do best. If you're struggling with the logistics of adding coverage to your existing schedule, or you're setting up completely new schedules for screening or treatment, let them help you out. They can get a new schedule up and running in a matter of days, leaving you to take care of other matters. Metricade really wants to help you out during this crisis. Let them give you a hand. Check out metricade.com slash emcases and get in touch with them today. 
So, so far we've gone through the preparation and the pre-oxygenation. The third thing that's going to be different when it comes to RSI and the COVID era is the sequencing. So Dr. Kovach, can you go through for us the sequencing of how we would do an RSI and how that's different? Before we proceed in the RSI, so we've, we're pre-oxygenating the patient, we have all of the necessary equipment within reach to handle what we need to handle. So that means having two bougies accessible, you know, one that's going to be used for a cricothyrotomy should it be necessary, and one that's going to be used for uh, your assistance when doing Macintosh uh, video laryngoscopy. It means that you're going to have your endotracheal tube sized appropriately for that patient and that you are going to have a styleted endotracheal tube that's shaped appropriately should you choose to use a hyperangulated video laryngoscope. It means that you're going to have within reach your supraglottic airway, and we are using the eye gel, and it's sized appropriately and within reach. And you have an OPA that you might not have thought of that, again, definitely in between attempts, if you choose to do apneic CPAP or support that patient's ventilations, that you will require that. So those are things that, that are all within reach, plus the usual thing in terms of, of, of suction, et cetera. What's critical is that uh, you only proceed to intubate that patient when that patient is paralyzed. And so what we're recommending is high dose neuromuscular blockade. And I really don't think it matters what you use sucks or rock, but what you're going to do is use high dose. So high dose, meaning 1.5 to 2 milligrams. There's really no downside. And the problem is that if you go in before and the patient has the potential to cough or, or too early, we want to have that patient paralyzed as quickly as possible because they are all going to be apnea intolerant, right? When you paralyze these patients, their saturations are going to fall. So you do have to consider what are you going to do and you need to prepare your team and acknowledge that. So you just either accept the fact that that's going to be the case or what you can do again is do apneic CPAP, right? Just aggressive jaw thrust with your nasal prongs on and consider placement of, of an oral airway, although that's controversial at that stage, right? You only want to place that when the patient's profoundly paralyzed and and at that point you're probably best to go in with with laryngoscopy but whether you're going to assist the patient during that and again that's a consider scenario and a consider means that it does provide some potential increased risk to the provider and that uh, you as a team need to make that risk benefit of, of doing that so then we've given our drugs one of the assigned roles is is the timer Right? So you have to wait until your patient is paralyzed before you go in. Before you, you push the drugs, you've all looked on the wall where your, your poster is for your visual aid. You do one last check, outlining what your process is, making sure your equipment's within reach. You have to do closed loop communication. You know, again, saying thumbs up, we're ready to go. When the person's administering the drug, again, We've committed to that specific uh, dose. 
when it's given, it's communicated back to the, uh, the provider. And then again, there's this very difficult wait period in these patients that I said are apnea intolerant. So then we're going to turn down the flow related to the nasal prongs. Uh, we would turn down the flow with your, your BVM that is, is contaminated at that point. And when it's appropriate, in terms of the time, the patient being completely paralyzed, you're going to go in doing optimized video laryngoscopy. An optimized video laryngoscopy is that you don't want to go in twice, right? So you want to make sure that your patient has been properly positioned, right, with essentially to keep it simple in a sniffing position. And then you take a second look to see if that sniffing position has achieved ear to sternum positioning, right? You're going to proceed with Macintosh laryngoscopy and using a bougie routinely on every attempt when using a Mac VL device, which is what we are recommending for people to use if they have access to it. And then at that point, you're going to have to, to come out. Everybody knows you've shared your mental model before as to what you're going to do between first and, and second attempt. And that really is one of, of three things. All of this is in the algorithm. The one of three things is just reapply your mask over the nasal prongs that are already in place but have been turned off. And then put your flow up again, five liters per minute for your nasal prongs and 15 liters on your BVM with a viral filter and a peep valve and apply a peep of 10 and just do an aggressive jaw thrust. And, and with that combination, a peep of 10, uh, 15 liters through your BVM, five liters of nasal prongs underneath it. And we've done, we've done testing this week with our cadavers. You do get really reasonable recruitment and uh, without bagging the patient as long as again an OPA is in place your nasal prongs and your BVM and you're doing an aggressive jaw thrust so the option is not to ventilate in that scenario so that's option one what we're calling apneic CPAP the second option is to do gentle pressure support again this is not a spontaneously breathing patient they're apneic so they they, they shouldn't be again generating any aerosolized particles. And the risk is when you apply pressure support and you don't have an open airway, um, then that has a potential of, of, of causing a, an issue. But again, if you put in an OPA um, and have done the things that we said for apneic CPAP, right, you can apply gentle pressure support. Again, this would be a consider. All of these are considers and uh, um, assist that patient guided by waveform, right? You're going to not be guided by saturations here, right? Um, pulse ox lag and because their sats might have dropped out of the picture. So you're essentially looking to, do I see a square-like waveform, right? And that gives you reassurance that you're ventilating that patient, that you don't have a leak and uh, you can't overventilate this patient. Ideally, you're doing this guided by a pressure man manometer and you're limiting this, your reoxygenation attempt um, to probably a minute at most. And within that minute, limiting it to say 10 breaths, six to 10 breaths. It's really hard to give six breaths in a patient who's hypoxemic. Just count it out yourself, 
right? One breath every 10 seconds. What we're used to doing when we failed first attempt is aggressively overventilating that patient. Now, before that was an issue because you dropped their CO2. Now it's an issue because you're, you're potentially aerosolizing a virus here. The third option in between attempt is to just is to place a superglottic airway. And the principle is that, okay, our interface is, is in the superglottic position. And that if, if it's been placed properly, and I, I really, again, emerge, we're not necessarily used to placing supraglottic airways. You need to commit to a device, ideally a second generation device that you can subsequently intubate through under direct guidance with a flexible scope by somebody who's very, very, very experienced in doing that. But the principle is, is that you're going to place it and then do a jaw thrust and the most common corrective maneuver right, is to pull it back a little bit, do a jaw thrust, and reseed it. All right. So uh, a lot to review there, just to orient people to where we are. So we've talked about preparation, we've talked about pre-oxygenation, and now we're talking about the sequencing and how it's different in the COVID era. So the first thing is you need all your necessary equipment within reach, two bougies, one for Crike and one for VL. You need your blades, your supraglottic airway, suction, etc. Next is uh, to make sure you're doing that closed-loop communication. Remember that the patient must be paralyzed before intubation to minimize coughing, and you're going to be using a high-dose paralytic. All patients will be apnea intolerant, so that's important to know. You're going to be turning down the flow of your nasal prongs and your BVM, and you're going to be using optimized VL with a bougie on your first attempt. Then we talked about rescue oxygenation between attempts at intubation, and we've got three choices there. The first is apneic CPAP, so reapplying the mask and increasing the flow to 15 liters of BVM, 10 of PEEP on your PEEP valve, and 5 liters of nasal prongs. The second option in terms of rescue oxygenation between attempts is gentle pressure support guided by waveform capnography. And the third option in terms of rescue oxygenation between attempts is your supraglottic airway. Anything else about the sequencing, Dr. Kovacs, that we need to know about? When we're talking about VL, we need to be very specific. That And our algorithm, we chose to be, and within our document, we chose to be very specific. So we're talking about Macintosh video laryngoscopy, right? So optimized... Macintosh video laryngoscopy is, is appropriate positioning. Um, as we've discussed what that is, um, you can do even a progressive uh, increased head lift um, and see if that's helpful. You can reach around, do ELM, um, but the primary ingredient of optimized uh, Macintosh video laryngoscopy goes back to the driver study is routinely using a bougie. Now, that's different than what you're going to do with a hyperangulated video laryngoscope and and whether a bougie out of the package will not be useful when you use a hyperangulated video laryngoscope these are around the corner devices and out of the package bougie is a straight device with a coude tip so people should not be using an out of the package bougie if they choose to on second attempt or first attempt using uh, an out-of-the-package bougie with a hyperangulated video laryngoscope. And that would be meaning, so, so for example, a, a CMAC with a D-blade 
or the uh, low pro or the, the traditionally what people refer to as glide scope. Again, they have a Mac blade and a hyperangulated blade, but with their traditional hyperangulated blade, um, not using out of the package bougie. There are steerable ones, right, that aren't commonly available. And then people do and report success with, with shaping um, the bougie distally. But this is, is really, a lot of it's, it's unvalidated. And uh, you have to be very experienced if you're, if you're going to do that. I just don't want people messaging, you know, getting the message that when you use a VL device, you should use a bougie, right? Um, again, when you use a Macintosh video laryngoscope, you should always use a bougie. That's what the driver study was. It was a Macintosh video laryngoscope um, study with routine use of a bougie, and they had a 98% first pass success rate. All right, let's review the protected intubation sequence. So your primary intubation device of choice is going to be the Macintosh video laryngoscopy with bougie, and that includes glidoscope DVM blades. You got to check your glidoscope to see which blades you have. If you don't have a Macintosh device available, instead use a hyperangulated video laryngoscopy. These are the D blades and glidoscope low pro blades. And remember that using a conventional out-of-package straight to coup tip bougie is not recommended as an adjunct with hyperangulated VL. But in experienced hands, a customized distally bent bougie, so a purposeful made malleable or steerable bougie, may be used with a hyperangulated VL. Now, let's say you fail the first attempt and need to reoxygenate your patient. So reoxygenation options after a failed first attempt in the protected intubation is either apneic CPAP or a supraglottic airway. So apneic CPAP would involve 5 liters of nasal prongs plus a BVM over top with 10 centimeters of peep and 15 liters per minute without any bagging. Now, if that's not working, then you can add some gentle controlled manual ventilations of six to 10 ventilations over one minute, ensuring a pressure of no more than 15 on a pressure manometer. Now let's move on to plan B options in the protected intubation. So your first plan B option is a hyperangulated blade VL if the Macintosh VL was used in the first attempt. And the second plan B option is a supraglottic airway, preferably the eye gel. Moving on to plan C in the protected intubation, that's going to be your scalpel bougie cricothyrotomy. And this is if you can't maintain oxygenation by either apneic CPAP, controlled ventilation, or an SGA. So you employ your emergency double setup strategy and perform a crike. Now the modifications for a crike uh, in the COVID era are first, don't proceed with ventilations through the mouth or nose. And the second is that you need to cover the patient's mouth and nose with a mask when they're placed on the ventilator. Now, one thing we didn't talk about with Dr. Kovacs was the option of high-flow nasal cannula. Now, this has been a little bit controversial. High-flow nasal oxygen is thought to increase the risk of viral spread through aerosolization, but in combination with a mask placed over top, it is thought to be safer than CPAP or BiPAP. And the WHO does recognize high-flow nasal cannula as an option for respiratory failure associated with COVID-19, and it has been used in China, Italy, and recently in the States as well. 
Dr. Kovacs, do you have any other tips when it comes to training for airway management in the era of COVID? Well, the first tip is do it. There's been just a lot of language that we, you know, that should be done and that we understand it, but we don't necessarily have buy-in. And I'm, might not be popular in the say that there, there's just no option here. You know, I think everybody needs to be signed off. Everybody hates the term signed off. It means that you've lost autonomy in some way. There's no real autonomy here. It's not about you. It's a, it's about your team. So you, you have to do it. And we need to employ the, the our experts in simulation, our experts in infectious disease, um, to, to help and be involved with these simulations. And you need to do them in situ in the places that you're going to do, you're going to do airway management. Because again, it's going into that unfamiliar environment and realizing that your suction's not in the same position, that it's blocking your access to your, your equipment that you're going to need in a hurry and these kind of things. So that's the, I think the, the big message, you have to do it together. There's two components is that you have to be good with the procedure in PPE. So you have to train yourself up and feel comfortable with VL, with two-handed mass ventilation, with placement of a, of a superglottic airway and ultimately doing a, a crike. And again, I'm, I'm sure this will be mentioned in the, in the crike and the little things is that you don't want to ventilate the patient as you're doing the crike, right? Normally we would still try to rescue ventilate the patient from above, right? With a mask or superglottic airway. That's the last thing you want to do when you when you sort of penetrate the cricothyroid membrane. And so again, another little bit of sequencing that you need to make sure of. And again, you have to be very careful about putting your finger in that transition, your finger and blade, if you're going to do a finger approach and not just use the blade as a placeholder. Previously, we would say, listen, it's more reliable to do it with your finger there. And I still think it is, but you need to, again, be able to practice that sequence because not about just cutting yourself, but just breaking the seal potentially, you know, in your gloves, um, that that becomes an issue. So these are the nuanced details that everybody needs to pay attention to. All right, Dr. Kovacs, any last words, not even when it comes to airway in particular, but just generally about this COVID era in terms of how we can all manage together in these trying times? So one thing I will say is that crisis does breed opportunity. And I didn't come up with that, uh, that, that statement, obviously, but it does. It's really forcing unprecedented collaboration. And it's absolutely incredible. And we need to make sure that we're working together and thinking on the same page as we move forward. The second thing is, is that our lives are so full of, of negative stuff, hearing higher rates and hearing about, about tragedies, et cetera. And that mindset will affect your ability to perform. So you have to keep healthy, right? You need to manage your own stress, right? And normally we're doing things like exercising, et cetera. And that exercising was, was uh, you know, getting out and going to a gym. And you have to figure out ways that now that you're, you're able to do that. You're able to do those things to keep your brain and your mind healthy so that you are not overwhelmed when you're faced with essentially a patient needing intubation. And if you do the things that we talk about and pay attention and train that things are going to be okay, 
right? So we need to have that positive self-talk that Mike Laurie and others have, have talked about. Remember the good things, right? This is stuff that you have the core skills or you should be able to train up to do those core skills to do it safely. The last thing I will say is there, there are places that are looking about, about airway teams and, and we might see this thing in the future and it generates a huge amount of, of controversy. But tomorrow and the next weeks, people are going to be faced with, with managing you know, the, these patients. And uh, we need to ensure that we are, we are not just good enough, but we're doing extremely well. Be safe.